So my argument is really not that the United States is doing this in a dirty hands last resort, but that at least in the early stages of this, there were things that the United States saw in Vichy that it very much liked and that it thought it could deal with. Looking back on the early years of World War II and the rapid expansion of the Third Reich, no defeat proved as shocking to the Allied powers as the fall of France. In barely six weeks through May and June of 1940, the whole paradigm through which Britain and the U.S. were approaching the conflict was suddenly turned on its head. No longer could the English-speaking democracies trust the powerful French army and its rock-solid Maginot Line to withstand Nazi aggression as it had done throughout World War I. France's world-spanning navy and its far-flung colonial possessions were suddenly ripe for capture by Germany, and the entire Western Hemisphere became vulnerable to the kind of pro-axis, fifth-column activity that seemed at work across Europe. The country's military defeat and the occupation of the northern half of its territory induced the Allied powers into a real panic and left a deep imprint on transatlantic relations and the war at large. Such is the argument of a recent book that our audience would be well advised to get their hands on, for it is expertly researched, generously footnoted, and favorably reviewed. It's called When France Fell, The Vichy Crisis and the Fate of the Anglo-American Alliance, published with Harvard University Press. Its author is world-renowned military historian Michael Nyberg, the inaugural chair of war studies in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the United States Army War College. Professor Nyberg's other books include Dance of the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War I, The Path to War, How the First World War Created Modern America, and Potsdam, The End of World War II and the Remaking of Europe. His discussant today will be Julian Jackson, who is Emeritus Professor of Modern French History at Queen Mary University in London. Professor Jackson also wrote a book about the fall of France for Oxford University Press in 2004, though his most recent book, which may be familiar to our audience, is a best-selling biography of Charles de Gaulle titled A Certain Idea of France. And as always, remember to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast, and please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash undecencypod. Now, here's for my thir- my first question, starting with Professor Nyberg and then turning to Professor Jackson. Uh, Professor Nyberg, you began work on this book under the so-called dirty hands hypothesis, famously hashed out by historian William Langer. That This is a hypothesis that the U.S. government had reluctantly, begrudgingly accepted Vichy as France's rightful government, hoping to woo Darlan and Giraud into a less pliant stance towards Germany and on the hope of defeating the Nazis in the longer term. Let's begin by uh, with you telling us a little bit more about the purpose of your book. Why is the fall of France relevant today, and how, if at all, has it been misconstrued by mainstream historiography? First of all, thanks very much for having me. This is a a great opportunity to talk with Professor Jackson, and I I appreciate the invitation. I think part of what I wanted to do with this book was to begin to present a sort of different narrative of America's World War II, especially those early years. We in the United States normally begin with Pearl Harbor. We normally treat American entry as something that is done to us rather than something uh, in which we are an active participant. So I wanted to go back to 1940. I wanted to begin to, to 
to explore this? How did the United States react to the fall of France? How did the United States begin to make policy decisions after the fall of France? And what role did the U.S. play? And when you start to look at the documents and you start to really look at what was going on, you don't see a United States that is reaching to Vichy sort of as a last resort. Instead, what you see is the United States looking at Vichy really is the best of the options that are out there, at least in 1940 and 1941. And that's symbolized by the visit uh, of a man named René de Chambron, who is both descended from the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, He's also the son-in-law of the new French prime minister and main power broker, Pierre Laval, and he's related by marriage to the Roosevelts. And it's this vision he presents to Franklin Roosevelt on the presidential yacht in June of 1940 that the the, the successor state, the the Vichy state, uh, can be anti-communist, anti-German, and yet still pro-American in the way that it goes about its business. And that's a, 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 a view of France that is about as good as the United States can hope for, given the military defeat on the battlefield. So my argument is really not that the United States is doing this in a dirty hands last resort, but that at least in the early stages of this, there were things that the United States saw in Vichy that it very much liked and that it thought it could deal with, or as we say here at the Army War College, could present the United States with a least worst option. And Professor Jackson, as I was uh, kind of outlining in my introduction, you've also written about the fall of France from a sort of a more European perspective or a British perspective. Uh, what what do you make of uh, you know what, what has just been said about the, this dirty hands hypothesis, which doesn't necessarily bear out when when the actual historical work is done? Well, I I I think uh, I, I would agree with everything um, that, that's just been said, and I don't really want to repeat it. I think one of the very important things about uh, Professor Nyberg's book is is he that he um, he reminds us how cataclysmic a shock it was to the world that the event that we call the fall of France happened, and it threw into disarray all conceptions of the way that the war was going to be uh, conducted, that in a sense, the Americans, uh, like the British in some sense, were sort of psychologically hiding or sheltering behind the famous Maginot line, the line that was supposed to uh, defend uh, or supposed to uh, prevent or slow down a German invasion. And of course, in 19... uh, in 1940, what the Germans did was to go through the uh, area called the Ardennes, where just at the point where the Maginot Line stopped, and a point of the frontier that the French considered had considered wrongly to be impregnable. And so it is a terrible shock, and the Americans, like the British, have to work out what to do. Um, I think one thing I'd just like to pick up on from your question, because I don't want to repeat what Professor Nyberg has said, is how uh, we look at the fall of France. What, and I think there, there is something interesting to say about the historiography, which kind of links to the question that we're exploring today, which is uh, America's view of the fall of France. For many years... Um, at least sort of 40 years after the war, 30, 40 years after the war, the historiography, the way that historians looked at what had happened in France in 1940 was, I suppose, overshadowed by that sense of the extraordinariness of what had happened. And one of the most famous books published posthumously by uh, the great French medieval historian, Marc Bloch, who was also in the resistance and was... um, 
shot as a resistor in 1944, and his reflections on what had happened in 1940 uh, came out posthumously after the war under the title, and the title is 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 perfect for our purposes. The strange defeat, strange defeat. It's unexpected. It's strange. No one knows. Everybody wants to ask, how could this have happened? And that book and many others uh, developed an idea that in some way what had happened in 1940 was a kind of inevitable ineluctable result of a political system and a society that let's use a shorthand word that had was a decadent to use a famous uh, word you title of another book by a french historian called la décadence Decadence, which was an analysis of French foreign policy in the 1930s. Now, more recently, historians like myself have tried to revise that view and to say, well, actually, there was lots that was working quite well about the regime in France before 1940. And perhaps rather than seeing it as a result of a kind of systemic collapse of everything, perhaps it was just just a military defeat, uh, just, of course, no military defeat can be completely separated from social and political factors. And that once that surprising military defeat had happened, which might not have happened, at that point, everybody reads back, if you want, a very pessimistic uh, view of the state of France in the 1930s. Now, how I think that's uh, relevant to our discussion today about America and France in the Second World War is I think that uh, American elites uh, they were, were shocked, and Roosevelt in particular was um, to say that he'd sort of written off France is perhaps not quite right, but he feels really that the respect, I think, that the French had had for France um, just collapses, as it were. It's just, it's gone. That's The shock is so brutal. And I think that does affect the way that they look at France. They say, right, you know, we are going to we are going to conduct a policy which is pragmatic and which is in our interests, perfectly logical thing for the Americans to do. And really, you know, we'll do with France what we want. France is in some ways finished. And when this strange man, General de Gaulle, appears on the scene, the Americans think, well, this, you know, this is a man who's living a kind of dream world of a France that no longer exists. I don't know if uh, Professor Nyberg would agree with that, uh, that there is this a, a sort of little sense under the current of contempt, which is the result of the high expectations there'd been of France before. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a sense that the France as America had known it is gone, and whatever replaces it is very much an unknown entity. There's also the fear, as I talk about in the book, that no nation like France could possibly have collapsed the way that it collapsed had there not been some fifth column, some some traitorous activity going on inside the country, uh, which is a real fear for the United States. So, Professor Nyberg, whether we agree with the decadence argument or not, we can all agree the swiftness of a defeat was staggering. How did that change the Allies' um, defence planning um, following that very swift defeat in the May to the summer of 1940? And can you explain how the US government started to shift its, um, its policy, especially on um, what 
could become the future industrial military complex that President Eisenhower would later warn about. And perhaps could you touch a word on what this says about the US's relationship to the world and Europe, that it was the fall of France, not Pearl Harbor in 1941, that actually launched America's defense ramp up. The most important consequence of the fall of France is that the European war now becomes the United States' war. So the United States in the 1930s had treated France as a, a, a stable element in Europe, stabilizing element in Europe. As long as the French army was this uh, paragon of strength, as long as its strategy was defensive, then the role that the French army and the Royal Navy played was to keep whatever conflict was brewing in Europe away from the United States. At the fall of France, American leaders come to realize how much they had depended on third parties to guarantee their security, how much of their security, as I say in the book, they had effectively outsourced to other countries. And in the United States, this leads to a great fear. If the Germans get control of the French fleet, if the Germans get access to Dakar or Martinique, these parts of the French empire uh, that are within range of the United States, or at least within range of Latin America, then the United States is looking into a really, really difficult security environment. So what happens here in May and, and June of 1940 is this tremendous shift in American attitudes. The United States passes the Two Ocean Navy Act, which is then the largest appropriation in American history. It goes to peacetime conscription, something the United States had, had never done. Uh, Roosevelt fires his secretaries of war and Navy, in effect fires them, and replaces them with two Republicans, setting up the American version of a unity government. All of these activities in this brief six-week period and what that's going to do is make the United States now committed to its own defense and then, by extension, to the defense of Great Britain, which the United States now sees as, a, in the cynical mind of the United States, the unsinkable aircraft carrier, the, the base they're going to use to get back into Europe. So th this moment of shock, this moment of real fear and trepidation that the United States had for so long expected other countries to secure it, that now it has to go and take these steps, these unprecedented steps, in order to try to recover lost ground as quickly as possible. Um, before we go back to Julian, I just find it quite staggering, the words you're using, outsource, third party, it sounds very much like the conversations we are having in Europe nowadays about our relationship to America. It's funny, it's staggering to see how things have completely no, flipped. No doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about that. The political science term is free riding yeah. when you essentially get your security through another state. And yeah. the context in which we usually use it is Germany spending less than what it might be expected to spend on, on, on defense. But the United States is doing the same thing in the 1930s because it's a very profitable strategy as long as the, the menace, the thing that you fear, can be kept an ocean away and 4,000 miles away. When that structure is gone, then that strategy is revealed as having been pointless, as having actually been self-defeating. Thus the fear. So the question is, what kind of event would be the equivalent of um, 1940, the fall of France, for the EU nowadays? But I think that's an entirely different conversation. We probably don't want to open that can of worms right now. But Professor Jackson, maybe could you could um, respond to what Professor Nayberg just said, but also kind of give us an insight on the way France was approaching its relationship to America. Because my understanding is in the last few weeks of um, uh, June 1940, uh, President Renault was begging uh, the Americans to come and help us help it by any, any, any ways. How has France's relationship changed with the United States in that kind of two-month period in which it got overwhelmed by the German army? 
Yeah, just before uh, answering that question, just to go back to um, that term about outsourcing um, defence, which which you've raised, and the 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 way in which it's quite um, uh, relevant at the moment. Of course, one of the the lessons uh, that De Gaulle took from the war was that no, that France must never outsource her defence uh, to anybody. Uh, his his strategy, in a sense, towards NATO and towards um, America in the 1960s, one of the points of it was, uh, we can't we can't be sure that forever America will consider it in her interests to defend uh, what that what we call the West. Uh, she might change her priorities. And if she changes her priorities, if we build our entire uh, strategy around uh, the American umbrella, we'll suddenly found ourselves vulnerable. And he would say, uh, when he was um, arguing with Kennedy in the night with both Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, this is in the late 1950s, uh, 58, 59, and with JFK in 61, 62, he would keep coming back to when they said, oh, you don't need nuclear, you don't need a nuclear deterrent. Uh, America is there just as part of uh, you, as part of uh, NATO, you can rely on us. And he said, well, uh, I remember there were two, uh, there have been two wars in the 20th, two world wars in the 20th century, and the Americans uh, were not there at the beginning. So in a sense, that some of these arguments do have an important uh, and so where de Gaulle starts to uh, he's not a he's not a fantasist he realizes that France can't uh, survive alone and that's why he starts to think about a European defense policy which may have which may be a chimera might not be possible might never be possible but that in a sense is part of the root of his thinking so this is all uh, quite relevant actually I think to our current debates um, but to go back to um, France's view of America, um, well, firstly, you're absolutely right. In 1940, in absolute desperation, uh, when there is a big argument going on in the French government about whether or not the conflict's over, whether or not an armistice needs to be signed, the prime minister at the time, President de Conseil, as they called it, Paul Reynaud, who's the man who precedes Marshal Pétain, uh, as a kind of final um, desperation uh, to encourage his government that, uh, with the view that all is not lost, uh, sends this uh, telegram to Roosevelt saying, um, I, it's going to be difficult for me to hold on unless I can have some guarantee of American support. That was a purely symbolic thing because he knew perfectly well that Roosevelt, uh, for all kinds of reasons, was not in a position uh, to be able to offer any help. He, uh, so uh, it was no more than, uh, I think, a symbolic gesture of desperation. You might almost say uh, preparing, Reynaud was almost preparing the ground for his uh, resignation. But uh, yes, of course, uh, let, when we talk about France in 1940, of course, there's they're not there's not France, there's the France of Vichy, and there's the France that de Gaulle claimed uh, to represent in London. And I think uh, one of the um, very uh, interesting things about uh, de Gaulle, who we uh, often see subsequently as um, an anti-American, is that actually his 
all, in the very first speech, the very first speech that he makes uh, from London in June 1940, on the June the 18th, what's come to be called in history his um, Appel du 18 Juin, his Appeal of the 18th of June, uh, de Gaulle, one of the reasons that de Gaulle gives for why the war is not over, or one of the reasons is that Britain Britain is still in the war, that France has an empire. But his third reason uh, is that there is the potential economic, industrial and military power of the United States. So from the very beginning, uh, de Gaulle's view of the world is that this is going to be a worldwide conflict in which America will eventually come and America will in some ways be uh, France's uh, will, will be uh, one of the reasons why the Allies will win what becomes a world war. And I think that's it, That's important to note uh, when we talk about, say, uh, when we, we talk about de Gaulle's later anti-Americanism, at the beginning he's, he's gambling on the Americans. He, and some of his first acts in London are a, an attempt to reach out to the Americans who have their own reasons for another for, for uh, playing what you might call the alternative strategy, which is to say, well, de Gaulle represents nothing, which is actually perfectly accurate in 1940 and indeed in much of 1941. And why don't we uh, gamble, to use the words of William Langer's, the book that was written after the Second World War, commissioned by Cordell Hull, um, uh, uh, Roosevelt's Secretary of state to defend a policy that after the war was much criticized. And Langer, a Harvard historian, wrote this book, Our Vichy Gamble. And the American gamble is that uh, it's not to gamble on de Gaulle, because he doesn't represent anything, but to gamble on Vichy, because after all, Vichy is not a bloc. Uh, uh, quite a Pétain uh, Laval um, who has the reputation of being a collaborator, though, uh, though as um, uh, Michael has said a moment ago, uh, the role of Laval's son-in-law in persuading uh, Roosevelt that uh, Vichy was worth playing on is, is, is very important. And his book brings that out really importantly. Um, nonetheless, uh, the Americans are, very, are well aware that Laval is a collaborator, but they say, well, Laval isn't Vichy. There are lots of currents of Vichy and there are anti-Germans at Vichy. Let's play on Vichy because Vichy has a fleet. Uh, Vichy commands a, 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 most of the French uh, empire, including North Africa. So it makes sense. And, and Vichy is popular with the French people or Pétain is popular with the French people. So this is a pragmatic uh, rash, and, and perfectly rational uh, gamble, at least at the beginning. It makes me think of um, how a lot of Napoleon's um, allies um, during the Napoleonic Wars end up turning against him. And I think that probably was in the mindset of a lot of European leaders, how, for example, Prussia, um, de facto an ally of Napoleon in Austria, um, end up turning against him when he lost uh, in Russia and they decided to fight on the side of the allies. Um, but I want to bounce back on America's bet because there's a second bet by America. Not only the first one was on Vichy, the second one, Professor Nyberg, you talk in the second half of the book a lot more about this character who was a rival and antagonist for de Gaulle for a few years and is now mostly forgotten. It's for General Giraud. Um, once the Americans realize that they cannot trust uh, or build anything with Vichy, they are still very skeptical of de Gaulle and his capacity to represent the French resistance. 
And so they turned to Giraud. Giraud is a general who escaped from Vichy and joined North Africa. And there was a very tense situation in which both de Gaulle and Giraud were jockeying to become the de facto representative of the French independence or resistance movements. And the Americans, after deciding to back Vichy, decided to back Giraud. And could this moment explain a lot of tensions between France and the United States, not just in World War II, we know that the relationship between Roosevelt and de Gaulle were appalling at times, but also down the road. Could this be the kind of fund, um, fundamental moment to understand the kind of latent anti-Americanism that to this day remains in French politics? Do you think this is one kind of foundational moments of the uh, Franco-American tensions and perhaps not only the French suspicion of America, but also America's suspicion of Gaulism in general? Professor Nyberg. I, I think Professor Jackson hit, hit the nail on the head when he talked about diverging interests that the, the French realize, and again, you have to you have to really think through which France we're talking about in this time period, uh, but that, that the United States will do what it perceives to be in its interests. And if it perceives Giraud as being in its interests, even though everybody close to Giraud knew that he could never develop into the kind of person that the Americans wanted him to be, then that's what the Americans will do. Um, I talk in the book a little bit about British criticism of what they call a Lafayette syndrome, this this belief among Americans that there was this very close relationship between the U.S. and France, uh, when in fact each side is pursuing what it perceives to be its interests. So De Gaulle has a set of interests that are different from Giraud's, although they overlap in some ways, especially on imperial policies. And as Professor Jackson also noted, Giraud has different interests than Vichy, even though in some ways their views overlap. The United States, on the other hand, has a very different set of interests. The United States wants to get the war in North Africa over with as quickly as possible. It wants a stable France. Uh, I think part of the reason that it rejects De Gaulle, part of the reason, is that the United States is not convinced that the French people are behind de Gaulle and that de Gaulle will provide that stability. Later in the war, 1944, they'll come to that realization. But America's interest is not so much in supporting one faction against the other as getting the kind of stability that they want to get. Now, it's also true that de Gaulle and several American leaders have terrible interpersonal relationships and much mutual suspicion. But I think it really does derive from that varying definition of what their interest is and what it is they want to see come out of France when this war finally ends. If, yeah, if I, um, so, so just before you, you mentioned uh, the fact that the Americans are, are, are um, gambling, if you want, on a, a different general, uh, not General de Gaulle, but the less well-known because he was ultimately um, didn't succeed, General Giraud. But you might uh, remember there's also a another general that they were uh, backing on, um, banking on before Giraud, and that was someone uh, called General Vegan, who was an important figure at Vichy. Um, he was one of those interesting people who had been very much in favor of signing an armistice. Uh, because he believed the war of o was over, but that did not make, and it, he was also very conservative, so he supported some of the uh, more reactionary measures of Vichy, but he was um, in no way pro-German, and his view was that if it would be possible one day to come back into the war, uh, that's what he would want to do. And the Americans... Um, and uh, Vegan is the Vichy representative, let's call him that, in North Africa for the uh, from about September 1940 to the autumn of 1941. So the Americans first think, oh, well, perhaps 
Vagon's going to be our man. But then in the end, Vagon is sacked by Vichy because the Germans intervene and because they realize that Vagon is hostile to them. And so the Americans are looking for uh, another, um, you might say, a conservative, another general who might be able to rally what remains of the French army in North Africa to them later on. Because, again, why is de Gaulle not the man? Well, another reason why de Gaulle is not the man for them is they have seen that de Gaulle's um, uh, condemnation, if you will, his, his, his break with Pétain has made him very unpopular with the French army. And uh, an incident we haven't talked about is de Gaulle's attempt uh, in 1940 to rally the French port of Dakar, which is strategically so important because it juts out into the into the Atlantic, uh, capital of French Senegal, important part of West French the um, French Empire in West Africa, and de Gaulle's attempt to rally uh, Dakar. He sends he, he goes to Dakar with a um, a, a, mil, a, a naval expedition a, a, a naval expedition which is um, largely uh, with the British and basically the Vichy defenders at Dakar fire on the French, fire on de Gaulle. It's the beginning of a kind of civil war and that's one thing that says to to Roosevelt, right uh, what's the point of banking on de Gaulle because the French military don't like him because they see him as a rebel Uh, so uh, on the generals but I'd like to ask since uh, I, I obviously agree with everything that um, Professor Nyberg has said, and I think he's absolutely hit the, the nail on the head about interests. I completely see his point. What I, what I, and and uh, the Americans are thinking, how do we save American lives? I see all that up to November 1942. Um, in November 1942, the Americans launched their landings in North Africa. It What actually happens then shows that Everything they'd been planning has failed because the Vichy defenders actually fire on them. And it's only when a, a, a Vichy leader who happens to be on the ground turns, realizes that it's, it's futile to, to resist any further, that he switches camp and rallies to the Americans. That's Admiral Darlan. Do, uh, uh, is, is, does the resistance in North Africa stop? And then the Americans occupy um, Algeria and Morocco, but they still have quite a tough fight in Tunisia because by then some German troops have landed in Tunisia. But I suppose my question to Professor Nyberg, and even after reading his book, I I, I still don't completely get the answer because to me it remains sort of perplexing and we're talking about rationality here, we're talking about pragmatism and I see that Roosevelt was totally pragmatic and actually totally rational up to that point in November 42. But actually, after November 42, uh, it's clear, well, Vichy no longer exists. And it seems to me that it's only a kind of obstinacy and stubbornness and prejudice and possibly the influence of French exiles in uh, America, old Third Republic people who say de Gaulle is a sort of, you know, fascist and so on, a right-wing general, that he continues not to to, uh, do everything he can to uh, keep de Gaulle out of the picture, despite the increasing evidence that de Gaulle is actually very popular in France. And I admit that to me, at that point, the rational Roosevelt becomes 
irrational in a way that I don't completely understand. And I don't know whether you have an explanation, Professor Myberg, for that, or whether you agree with the way I formulated it. I, I think the Americans are still trying to figure out what this what this place is. Vagond hates Peyton, Peyton hates de Gaulle, de Gaulle hates everybody seems to hate everybody else. And I found a few notations in the archives, a couple in the British archives, a couple in the American archives, that the United States had not yet given up on Peyton as a potential, at least figurehead at some point down the road. So I think the Americans are still trying to read this picture and figure out which of these um, leaders will give them their best chance to get what they want. I think it's also important important to note, the United States had so little trust in Giraud and de Gaulle that they didn't tell either one the details of Operation Torch. So both de Gaulle and Giraud are, in my mind, understandably livid. They're furious uh, that, that there's an invasion of French territory by American and British forces, and they were misled and intentionally deceived about the timing and nature of those operations. So de Gaulle uh, told, I think it was Allen Brooke or somebody, uh, said something like, well, I hope the Vichyites throw them back into the sea. That was his first response. Um, he quickly recovers from that and understands what's going on. But there's so little trust between the two sides that the United States didn't even bother to tell Giraud or de Gaulle what was going on. So I think it took time. And I think that, as I argued in the book, I, I think if Darlan had not been assassinated, there's every chance the United States might have tried to back Darlan instead of de Gaulle. Uh, it, it's a complicated picture that I don't think the United States ever fully understood. Yeah. And is there, there's one other thing I think that, that your book brings out really importantly, which I don't think... Uh, mm, really anybody else is quite stressed in the same way or to that degree, which I think we haven't mentioned uh, at this point, which I think is important to bring up. Because now when one looks back at the Second World War, there one of the one of the stories one tells is the um, strong personal relationship between uh, Roosevelt and Churchill, the, the sort of premises of what becomes called later on the special relationship or after the war. And yet what you show and what is interesting uh, is that the uh, the goal or the question of how to deal with Vichy becomes a really um, quite a, a major point of contention between the Americans and the British. And that um, uh, and Cordell Hull at times is incensed by what he sees as uh, the British backing de Gaulle. And it just so happens that I have, a, um, I just actually got... A, Langer's book open on my desk, not because we're after this conversation, but because I'm writing about Pétain at the moment, and I was just looking something up. And I just literally have in front of me where, where Langer, who's obviously speaking, in a sense, through the, he's a sort of voice piece of the State Department after the war. He says, de Gaulle was a hireling of the British. And that's very much how uh, the, I think the Americans saw it, although of course de Gaulle was far from a hireling of anybody, given how abominably he behaved also to the British. I think that's right. I, I think the United States just didn't know how to read de Gaulle. At times they compare him to Stalin. At times they compare him to Hitler. They say there's no point in defeating Hitler on the east side of the Rhine, only to have one pop up on the west side of the Rhine. They just don't know what to do with him. He doesn't. He doesn't fit any model uh, of what they recognize. Uh, they have very little trust in him. They just don't know what he is. And I think it's to de Gaulle's credit that he is able to play through that confusion. He's able to actually use it 
to benefit what it is he's trying to accomplish. So I, you know, for the American leaders who know De Gaulle, the the, the language they use against him. It's language they reserve only for the Nazis. I mean, they are they are furious with de Gaulle for all sorts of things, both political and personal. And yet he's able to to leverage that so that by the time of the Normandy landings, even the Americans have come to accept that he's the only choice. He's the only option left on the table. Could I just want, ask, I'm sorry, just one other to pick up. I'd be interested to have your view about one other point, because you, you've actually made much, you, you, you've offered a, 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 a Sort of strikingly plausible defense of uh, American policy, saying that they're they, they they're doing their best, but they Vichy is difficult to read. There are all these different factions. There are these people who hate each other, and they've got to try and out of in that labyrinth create a policy. And I see I see all that, and I think you've put that very clearly. But in your own, you know, one thing that struck me in in your book is there's a there's a phrase i can't remember where you you quote Leahy saying after he's been in america about uh, sorry after he's been in vichy about six months i can't remember the exact date or the exact quotation where he he writes back to roosevelt and says something i've been here for now six months i don't think i've had any influence on anything and and so i suppose what make what that makes me think is at what point do they sort of realize this isn't working? This hasn't worked. It's not got us anywhere. Here, I think that's where Vagan comes in. I, I think there is a, a clear sense among Leahy that the United States just doesn't have the power to to deal with Vichy because Germany is holding all the cards. Germany is literally occupying the capital city. It has hundreds of thousands of French POWs. It, it controls everything. Vagand in North Africa is a little bit of a different case. And Vagand is a familiar if not fully trusted face uh, from Americans because of the World War I experience they had with him when Vagon was Ferdinand Foch's chief of staff. So I think it's when Vagon, when it's obvious Vagon is not going to turn into the kind of pro-allied force they hoped. And then when Laval returns to the government at the behest of the Germans that the Americans say, well, everything we've been trying is, it's, it's just not working. We have to come up with a different policy. And that's why Giraud is so important. Great. And Professor Jackson was just, just a couple of brief moments ago uh, talking about Dakar and, and as, a, as, a, as a port. Um, and, and my next question here, turning over to our next question, deals with uh, these, this issue of uh, land and how, uh, how it, it, it helped to shape some of the American uh, fears and expectations uh, as France went from being uh, uh, from being a uh, went went into its downfall and its uh, defeat. Uh, the first part of the book uh, by Professor Nyberg describes this sort of gripping fear across the U.S. government of the prospect that France's powerful navy and its colonial ports could be leveraged by the occupying Germans. How real was that fear, and how grounded? And meanwhile, and this is the the second part of this two part question. Meanwhile, you describe the Vichy regime as mostly content with being kept out of the war and the expectation of avoiding any major uh, land seizures from the Axis powers. Is this account symptomatic of what Henri Rousseau has termed the Vichy syndrome, namely the portrayal of that regime as a benign bulwark against uh, total occupation? Well, to your first point, it's it's not difficult to look at a map and see a really terrifying scenario if you're an American planner. The the French have a colony in Martinique with a deep water port and an aircraft carrier. Uh, Dakar, as Professor Jackson has mentioned, sits along those sea routes of communication. There's even a scenario that Americans get an intelligence report that Vichy is building uh, long runways in Senegal that are larger than anything the Vichy Air Force needs. That could mean that the Germans are trying to ferry bombers from Dakar 
into Brazil. Uh, there's also a fear that Germany's success is going to lead to pro-German coup attempts in Latin American countries. There are some wonderful propaganda posters that are, are produced about this. Um, so the fear is real. Uh, whether it's exaggerated or not, I guess... Um, it's difficult to say. We can all remember the days post 9-11 when all kinds of fears come about or uh, when COVID first began. When, when your sense of security goes away, fear is going to, to predominate over anything, over anything else. But I think you can come up with some really unpleasant strategic scenarios without too much imagination and too much um, too much exaggeration of the, of the data in front of you. If the Germans get the French Navy the strategic picture for the United States is radically different. At the same time, of course, that issues with Japan and the Pacific are getting worse and worse and worse. So I think it's easy for American planners to look back again to say the, the interwar years, these 20 years since the end of World War One, we haven't done our primary job, which is to ensure the safety and security of the American people. Uh, now we're facing the the realities of that, of that um, uh, parsimoniousness on defense, and now we've got to do something about it. The second question about the Vichy syndrome, um, I think is a little bit harder to address. Um, most American politicians and most American observers, it seems to me, uh, displayed very little concern about what was happening to the French people themselves. They had sympathy for the French people. They wanted in some vague sense to see the French people rise up against their, their German masters. But fundamentally, they're interested in the strategic problem of how to defeat the German army. And they're interested in the, the fundamental strategic problem of what France will look like when the war is over. I found no evidence uh, that that the overwhelming evidence of Vichy anti-Semitism had any effect on American planners, um, that the starvation policies that that the Germans had imposed on Vichy, the food they had taken out of unoccupied France, I find no evidence that those are primary drivers. Uh, the primary drivers of American foreign policy are, are strategic, they're military, um, and they are political. So I'm not sure that this is a case of, of Rousseau's uh, famed Vichy syndrome, except in the way that the United States tries to remember this war at the end of it, the same way that the French do, to, to, to try to depict Vichy as a kind of odd parenthesis to an otherwise wonderful uh, uh, Franco-American relationship. And that breaks down pretty easily on closer examination. Yeah, um, well, on, on the the um, the second part of the question first uh, about the, the Vichy syndrome, I, I, I don't think that really is uh, relevant here. I, I'm not quite even sure quite how you're how you're making that link. The Vichy syndrome was was a, a very important, influential book about the way uh, that the French uh, remember Vichy, have remembered Vichy since the Second World War, and how there used to be a myth about resisting France and it was developed was changed by a, a different kind of views and the way in which in the 1980s people started to worry much more than they had before about the um, the way in which Vichy had uh, persecuted the Jews and and so on but I, I, I'm not sure I, I completely see how how that fits in except if it's the way that uh, Professor Nyberg's just said that is to say um, were the Americans concerned by what we now look at as some of the more unpleasant sides of the Vichy regime, that's to say, particularly its anti-Semitism, then yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure he's right. That was um, not a major consideration. And the truth we must remember is that that wasn't a major consideration for anybody. It's only really in the last, um, really only since the 1980s and right up to now that the issue of um, the 
uh, the, the Vichy's persecution of the Jews has become a, a big issue. But going back to the other uh, half of the question, well, it's uh, about empire, about the empire. I, I would just sort of throw in a, a I've got nothing to add to what um, Professor Nyberg said uh, about uh, the American panic uh, about what might happen if the French Empire fell into um, German hands. And I, but I do think his uh, analogy is very effective with just moments when, which are so extraordinary that you start to fear absolutely anything. And I think the 9-11 one is, is, is a good analogy. And I think this, what's important uh, about his book is it reminds us uh, that a country that doesn't seem so very important in the world now really seemed very important in 1940. And to show that uh, the fall of France was as big a shock, perhaps even, perhaps not, certainly comparable for American elites, at least, to uh, Pearl Harbor that we remember much more. But to go back just to, just to, on the empire issue, because I just leads on to a, to a point we haven't, um, discussed. Of course, after the war, uh, partly because uh, Roosevelt had now, I suppose, developed a very uh, dim view of France, but also because I think he had uh, a project, a post-war project, uh, for uh, where he believed uh, in a world, uh, in the end of empires, if you want, a sort of decolonization project, a decolonialization project that the British uh, and uh, French uh, there would be a, a world in which there would, you know, the British, the Americans, the Soviets, um, and po- would would um, be a sort of three power, which would which would be dominating the world. But the, the the days of empires were over, and I do wonder if one of the reasons why after forty two and into forty three and even into forty four, because even after D Day. Uh, Roosevelt is still writing to people, oh, I think support for General de Gaulle will collapse soon, and so on, uh, which really nobody believed any longer by then. I mean, Eisenhower didn't believe it by then. I don't think even Cordell Hull believed it by then. I'm not sure about that. But I do think that one thing in Roosevelt's mind at one level is that uh, a a post-war France led by somebody who's got such clear views about you know, a great France after the war, would be much harder to manage than, a, than one without de Gaulle. That is to say, he saw him uh, partly as an obstacle to his view of the post-war world. And I don't know whether uh, Professor Nyberg thinks that's um, fanciful or not, really. Oh, I, I definitely think that the United States, by the time of 1944, didn't much like de Gaulle anymore, but certainly had come to respect that this is a man who laid out a vision in 1940, as you articulated earlier, and very much executed that vision. There is no France without Charles de Gaulle in 1944, at least nothing that anybody can recognize or depend upon. I, When I brought my little girls when they were little to, to France, I used to joke, there's a reason why every second thing in this country is named for Charles de Gaulle. Um, and there are many things that he did in his life, uh, but among them is to lay out this vision and hold to it, that France would emerge from the Second World War independent, with no American occupation, with the, most of the traces of Vichy, at least physically and, and 
and on the surface removed, and with France returning to some very important role in the world, which which he he executes a UN Security Council veto, later nuclear weapons, all of that. So, you know, the United States had come to realize that. I think I, I found a document in the New York Public Library from an American member of Congress and, for, and French Legion of Honor winner who wrote to Roosevelt and said, "Look, we 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 can't live without this man. So we had better learn to um, live with him." So to conclude, um, in your conclusion, Professor Nyberg, you warn that we often mislead ourselves about our past. We not only fail to learn, but we sometimes learn exactly the wrong lessons. Um, You go on to claim that our collective memory of the Second World War as a period of American strength clouds for real trepidation that drove policy from 1940 to 1943. Could you develop that a bit further, please? This is something that my training in the First World War has made me very sensitive to, that, that the United States has chosen to remember the First World War as something that is just a series of, of endless mistakes. And the Second World War is this great moment when the United States seemingly did everything right. And so one of the things I wanted to do in this book is to underscore that states don't have a magic answer key, that these questions come up that don't have easy answers and problems come up uh, that present nations with grave difficulties. And so when we miss this misremembering of the two world wars does a disservice in both cases. And so what I really want readers to come away with is that the Second World War is um, a period, at least in the early stages, of American confusion, American weakness, American realization that some of the assumptions it had made about the world around it were incorrect, and that this is a moment when these these leaders had to deal with a very rapidly changing global situation. And there are lessons that we can learn all the way down to the way that we dealt with COVID in our own time. And as we've been hinting about, uh, the ways that the United States and France have uh, interacted with one another, uh, both before the Second World War and after. And I end the book with this anecdote of a flag that's in my building that um, I, I'm not sure how many people in the building even bother to stop and look at it, but the flag is a gift in 1978 from that same man, René de Chambron, uh, who gave the flag to the United States Army War College uh, as an act of reconciliation, as an act of trying to make sure that U.S.-French relations stayed on the level that he wanted to see them. So this is all part of an arc that gets us very close to the modern day. And Professor Jackson, how did you how do you see this period influencing the way France and America interacted in the post-Second World War and to today? Well, no, I think it's uh, the way you framed the question is uh, about the, the lessons one learned, one, the lessons that people and leaders and politicians uh, learn or learned or should have learned. Of course, there, there, there aren't any there aren't any simple lessons you can draw all kinds of of uh, different conclusions depending on your point depend from the same events um, but I think what's very important is to come I, I do think that the experience of um, the relationship or the the, the the legacy of what the Americans tried to do with Vichy and their very bad uh, relations with de Gaulle uh, have had a very important consequence. There's a, a tendency sometimes to, to talk about de Gaulle as um, an anti-American. And I've always 
resisted that idea because I don't think he's an anti-American in the way that some people are anti-American. That is to say, and many French, that's to say America is a materialist civilization, Coca-Cola, and um, it has no history. Uh, I don't think de Gaulle cared about that side of America one way or the other. But what the the the, the Second World War, nor do I think he had any particular, I think he had a great admiration for Roosevelt, which is quite clear from his war memoirs. There wasn't any particular personal rancor against Roosevelt because the lesson that de Gaulle took from his Second World War experience was that when uh, was the sheer um, uncontrollability, if you want, of American power. I know that Professor Nyberg's been saying, well, actually, the Americans felt very much very vulnerable in 1940, but they don't feel very vulnerable by 1944, I think. They now feel, you know, they, 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 they have a sense of their power. And de Gaulle's first ever visit uh, to America when he um, went to see uh, Roosevelt, his second ever meeting with Roosevelt in July 1944. And he comes back amazed at what he just, the, the sheer energy of America. Uh, New York just completely dazzles him the you know all these cars these building this modernity this future and what he takes from that is uh we have to be america is the new is the new world empire and if you want to uh, exist if you want to count in the world it's against america that you're going to have to count so that's not so much anti-Americanism as having identified America as the world power that is a threat to a country that wants still to count in the world. So one mustn't make a, a simple link between de Gaulle's condemnation of the Vietnam War, de Gaulle's recognition of communist China in 1964 uh, to annoy the Americans, his attacks on the dollar in 1965, his taking France out of NATO in 1966. We can't draw a simple line from his experience with Roosevelt. But I think what that experience showed him is that it is against America that if we are going to exist, we have to show that we exist. And uh, so I think in that sense, the experience of the war was was very important. And if you go to the Second Iraq War, one of the points the uh, Ameri- the, the French are, are actually very proud of is the speech that was, whereas the British very much followed, um, uh, George Bush, uh, Tony Blair was absolutely behind that uh, uh, fully uh, uh, paid up, as it were, to the Iraq war. Whereas, of course, famously, uh, Dominique de Villepin, who was Chirac, President Chirac, Gaullist President's uh, uh, foreign secretary, made a speech in, in at the UN in New York, where he put the argument against uh, a, a war, that, against the war. And that is in a absolutely Gaullist sort of spirit. And I think you can draw a line back to uh, the experience of the French in the Second World War, from uh, to to that moment. Right. And with that, uh, we are uh, we're we're having to draw this episode to a, to a, to an end to a conclusion. Thank you so much for agreeing to uh, uh, to speak to one another about Professor uh, N- N- Nyberg's latest book. And I'll just give the title of it again so that our audience can head over to uh, to uh, to um, 
uh, to their preferred platform and, and get a copy of this book. It's called When France Fell, the Vichy Crisis and the Fate of the Anglo-American Alliance, forthcoming with Harvard Press. And again, Professors uh, Jackson and Nyberg, thank you so much for agreeing to this episode. So Professor Nyberg and Professor Jackson are out. Jorge, what did you make of this episode on Vichy... Uh, Washington and the goal. So I think w- one of the things that I really wanted to, to, to pick up on is is the um, this alleged ignorance by the Americans of the anti-Semitism that pervaded the Vichy regime. And uh, one one part of, of our episode that I, that I particularly enjoyed is how clearly Professor Nyberg stressed that this was d- that this ignorance came despite the overwhelming evidence that the Vichy regime was turning against the Jews of France and was even collaborating in their deportation. Um, It's a fascinating conversation because, especially for someone, a Frenchman like me, it's a very uncomfortable conversation because you can really see how there's a shift, how the Americans and most of the world thought that France was the world's best military um, by, by, by at least better than, than the UK and the US. And so it's any crumble this quickly is a seismic shift. Also kind of a cultural sense as well. All of this pivots. And it's really interesting to see um, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, to see how people talk about America. In the 1930s, America was, a, was kind of a strange child of Europe. Um, it was an adventure. It, it, it was European, but kind of in a, in a strange um, way. And then in 1950s, it shifts. America becomes not the periphery of a kind of European civilization, but it's very center. And I think what we see at that point is this kind of pivot from America being the, the periphery to being the center of European civilization. And what Jackson said about the goal coming to Europe is, is a very good example. Uh, coming to America is a great example. He, he sees this shift coming. Um, and he's not the only one. I, I um, uh, My great-grandfather, François Valentin, also went to America um, in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And he was an assistant to Le General de Latre. He was trying to get American support for the war in, in Vietnam, in, in the China back then. And he talks about this kind of energy. He, he really understands that America is becoming the center of this um, new, new uh, Western civilization building up. The other reason I want to talk about my great-grandfather, François Valentin, was because he was an MP in the late 50s, and he was a right-wing MP. But I think what people don't realise is nowadays de Gaulle is a unitary French figure. Everybody is a Gaullist. Everybody, um, nobody will criticise Jean de Gaulle. He's kind of a a saint of of French, of the French Republic. But he was very, very divisive back then. Um, it's only when he died he stopped becoming divisive. And that's why the Americans hated his guts um, for a, a large part of the war, Second World War, is because he was rough, he was tough, um, he, he would not concede anything. Um, and so my great-grandfather, for example, was an MP, and he was a right-wing MP, so back. He supported um, Algérie Française. He unfortunately died in a car accident. Now, depending who I ask in the family, it's either a... Um, uh, terrorist attack by the Gaullist uh, um, dark arts, or it's a genuine car accident. But he died in a car accident, so we never know what, what he would have done with his kind of political um, influence in the parliament. But 
I think it's something we forget. De Paul was immensely divisive um, back then, and that's probably why the Americans couldn't stand him. Definitely. And with that, we'll we'll bring this episode to a to a full uh, close. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to stay tuned through Twitter and any platform that you listen to us on. Uh, make sure to stay up to date with all our episodes. And-